we have to uh, talk about hard subjects. And so that's where I'll start um, today. Uh, I'll just stop beating around the bush. Um, you guys, so in 2017, the Astros cheated. So we cheated. We cheated. Straight up cheated. Like there's no getting around that fact. And we're just better off if we just sit with it for a second, right? Instead of like the whataboutism game and what them and that and all this. Like there's all kinds of things we could say. And it's just better if we just take a minute and acknowledge like our team that we love. The team that I repped on stage in worship with a jersey on preaching the gospel in an Astros jersey. In Christmas Eve 2017, my whole sermon was about the World Series. I showed a clip <laughs> of the World Series. This has been an awful, awful time. And it's taken me a while to even have the courage to speak about it. I don't know why it's so depressing. It's just baseball. But, you know, for most of us, for many of us, it's more than just baseball. And the Astros bent the rules. They broke the rules. They used, like, the cutting-edge video technology to, to capture the signs of other to steal the signs. And then, for some reason, they decided to communicate that signs using a dugout garbage can. I don't know why. They didn't come up with a better way, you know. <laughs> but guys, like, it's important that we're clear, like, it's wrong, right? And no matter how you did it, you cheated. And, and there have to be consequences, right? Kids, it's always wrong to cheat. Like, you never come out on top, right? And that's important that we know that. And the Astros have paid a price, and we've seen that in the news and what they have to give up. The best GM in, you know, organization's history and the best coach in the league probably and the maximum fine that the, that the league can, can give them and premium draft picks for years. Like, there is a price to pay, but maybe, maybe the most important price to pay is going to be just the reputation, right, of the players and the organization and the fans. It's been an awful time um, since this news broke. Now, I do have questions, right? Like many of you, I have a few, like, tertiary questions, like, oh, were the Astros the only ones that were doing this? Probably not. Should they, in retrospect, have used Apple Watches like the Yankees and Red Sox did instead of the trash cans? Like, probably, in retrospect, but that still doesn't change the fact that it's cheating, you know. Uh, you know, did, did the Yankees win their last World Series with a roided-up A-Rod at third? Yes, they did. And uh, are the Yankees and, and uh, Dodger fans still the worst fans on earth? Yes, they are, but it doesn't change any facts about it. The Astros cheated, and we have to, to sit with that, and it's going to be a really, really difficult season, y'all. Sometimes when a bad rep is chasing you around, it's like the hardest thing to outrun it, right? And this season is gonna be brutal. I do not recommend being an Astros fan on Twitter under any circumstances for the foreseeable future. It is an awful, awful, hateful place to be for Astros fans right now. And for Astros players, it's gonna be a hard, a road to hoe this year. Like, it's going to be a lot of booze, a lot of harassment. They're going to take a lot of fastballs to the ribs this year. There's already, like, threats coming out and all this. And, and they're going to have to defend their reputation, the honor, the integrity that they've lost. Because if they don't, like, step up and show the world they can play as well as they've played before without cheating, they're going to go down in history as frauds. And in many people's book, they, they'll go down in history as frauds no matter what. There will always be an asterisk on that 2017 title, right? 
And so these guys, it's a little devastating, you know, when you look at these guys, and we love them, we've, we've followed them for years, Correa and, uh, and Altuve and uh, Springer and, uh, you know, uh, all these uh, young guys, Bregman, and uh, how they're going to have to work extra hard to overcome the bad rap that they have earned for themselves, right? We, we might have, like, multiple Hall of Famers on this team, like we do probably future, potentially future Hall of Famers, but this will cast a pall over their whole career, which is sad. Like these guys have worked very hard to get to where they are in life. These guys are very, very good at what they do. And yet now it's all under scrutiny, right? And it just is another reminder that sometimes a bad name, a bad reputation is very hard to outrun. And not only that, but once you internalize that reputation in your heart about yourself, once the external voices become the voice in your head, that's really, really hard to leave behind. For example, when you are trying to follow Jesus and forget about the voices you've been listening to, including your own, saying what they say about you. This is part four in a series called Chasing Hope, How Ordinary People Make Extraordinary Disciples. Today, we've been for three weeks now, this is the fourth, we're talking about um, how these ordinary people left their life behind that they had before Jesus and to follow him. And we've asked the question, like, what did they have to leave exactly? How did it change their lives to follow him? And the point of this is to find ourselves in that story that we read about each person that we're investigating each week. And today, we're going to look at what it means to leave a past behind, to leave a reputation behind, right? To leave a solid name behind. That's not easy to do. And we're doing that by looking at the life of a man named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Before we're introduced to him in more detail in a minute, there's a couple things I want to do. I want to visit two other stories that precede Luke 19 in the gospel of Luke that sort of foreshadow Jesus's experience with Zacchaeus. All right, y'all follow me? So we're not going to talk about Zacchaeus yet. We're going to talk about these foreshadowings of him. First of all, Luke chapter 5. Luke tells us about the time that Jesus met another tax collector named Matthew. His other name was Levi. If you read Matthew and Levi in your Bibles, Luke 5, same guy. He had a Jewish name and a Gentile name. The reason he had a Gentile name is that he was always in contact with Gentiles because Matthew, like Zacchaeus, was a tax collector. He was a publicani a chief tax collector. I'll say more about what that means in a second. But um, Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Matthew immediately followed him through a party that night at his home in Jesus's honor. The only people that came to Matthew's party were other tax collectors. Why? Because when you're a tax collector, you're despised and your only friends are other tax collectors. And so they all come to the party. And of course, the religious guys like me, preachers and such, we're standing on the sidelines like criticizing Jesus for being at this party full of sinners. And Jesus' response to that criticism is in Luke 5.32, where Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, you guys, but sinners, to repentance. Repentance being the operative word there, I think. The second story I want to mention that foreshadows Zacchaeus is from Luke chapter 18, just a few lines before Jesus and Zacchaeus. Is, it's, almost like, it's almost like Jesus knew this was coming, and so he tells this parable about two men who go into the temple at the same time to pray. One of them is a high and mighty 
super religious guy. And he goes up front where the super religious guys prayed. And he stands tall and he prays a prayer before God that sounded something like this. Oh Lord, I'm surrounded by the filth of sinners all the time. I look around and all I see are prostitutes and adulterers and thieves and even tax collectors like him. Lord, thank you for not making me like them for I am good and they are not. And then there's another man in the back, way in the back. Maybe he doesn't stay back because he has to. Maybe he just doesn't feel worthy of going forward. Either way, this is what Jesus said. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified or saved in the eyes of God. All right? That's the story Jesus told to tell before he walked into Jericho, um, Zacchaeus' hometown. Now, I want to say a brief word about tax collectors. If you've been in church for any length of time in your life, you know we're always talking about how bad tax collectors were. But it's not very clear why we think tax collectors were so bad. Like, it's like we lump them together with prostitutes. And I think people just accept it like, oh, they were like prostitutes. But it doesn't really make sense. They were tax collectors. And there's two things in life you can always depend on, right? Death and taxes, of course. Somebody's got to collect them. Why is it such an evil thing to be a tax collector? Well, we have a lot of information from the first century Roman Empire, right, where it shows where tax collectors got their reputation. And first of all, tax collectors were hated because they worked for the Roman government, right? And so the Roman government were the, they were the overlords of the provinces that they, that they conquered. And so life in, uh, you know, these Israelite communities it was difficult because the Roman military was always watching them and show, telling them what they can and cannot do, these foreign powers. And the tax collectors would collect taxes from their Jewish brethren and then give the money to the Roman military to supply their own overlords. They were traitors, filthy traitors, like Mike Fires. No, wait, not Mike Fires. So, uh, so they were traitors, hated, despised. That's reason one. Second reason, they were uh, ritually Biblically unclean, they were unwelcome in the Jewish religious community because they were always in contact with the Roman Gentiles, right? So their testimony was not allowed or permissible in Jewish courts. They were labeled irredeemable by the Jewish law of the day. Irredeemable, powerful word. It's the second reason they were despised. The third reason is more general, and um, there's a lot of evidence to support this, that tax collectors were just not very nice guys. They were brutal. Let me tell you, um, like, how this would um, go down. Like, everything was legal for tax collectors to do except um, to frisk uh, the, the person of a, the body of a, a Roman citizen who was female. If you were any other person, literally everything you had and, and your body itself was fair game for tax collectors. They could frisk you. They could search your home. They could seize any undeclared property whatsoever, like... You can imagine how that would feel, that sense of violation, right? And, and so that followed tax collectors around everywhere that they went. There's even evidence historically of tax collectors um, physically abusing elderly citizens or elderly people in these provinces to ascertain the whereabouts of that elderly person's relatives who were tax evaders. 
But that tells you a lot of what you need to know about why tax collectors are often lumped in with these other sort of egregious um, sets of sinners in the Gospels. And Zacchaeus is probably the most notorious tax collector that Jesus runs into in any of the four Gospels. And let's talk about his story now. This is Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. It's in your Bibles, obviously, but it's also uh, on the back of those um, sermon notes, study guide deals. Y'all were handed when you came in if you want to follow along with me. Okay, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since he was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. All right. Now Zacchaeus, um, you know, pretty prominent in this gospel, but um, really the only thing most people know about Zacchaeus is what? He's short. <laughs> Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> like, how would you feel, guys, if that was your legacy? <laughs> Horrible, right? We're all going to owe him a big apology in heaven one day, okay? So... <laughs> Uh, he was short in stature, but he had some big guy energy. Like he would go around and he ran the show. And, and, um, and so I, I try to get a mental image of Zacchaeus being, being sort of um, diminutive, diminutive in stature, right? But big in status. So I picture Zacchaeus, this may be a, a reach, but I picture him as being one of those guys who drives a truck that's a little too big for him. And... Uh, has a house that's a little too showy, you know, he's trying to make a point and prove like to the world who he is and, uh, and uh, maybe his biceps don't fit the rest of his body. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of how I picture Zacchaeus. But all joking aside, I have tremendous respect for guys like Zacchaeus because obviously the deck wasn't stacked in his favor, genetically speaking. Like the world is still unfair to people who don't measure up in terms of height. But back then it was even more uh, of a prejudicial society about such superficial things. And so Zacchaeus had a lot working against him, but he was at the top of his game. And I know that doesn't happen by accident. Zacchaeus worked like a dog. He had a strategy. He made it happen. I don't know if you caught it in the story. It said that he was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. That was a publicani. What that meant is that he didn't go around door to door collecting taxes. He was a serious businessman. He had built an empire. He was the overseer of all tax collection in and around the city of Jericho. And if you wanted to be a publicani, first of all, you had to work like a dog to save money so you could go to the Roman government office auction and place a bid to earn the right or buy the right to do the, that job. And so he placed the highest bid, financially getting out over his skis. He took a risk. And then on top of that, he had to go and hire a staff of tax collectors who could go and actually do the work. And so publicanis were moguls. 
Like they, they were serious businessmen, and Zacchaeus was top dog. And I know that doesn't happen by accident. I know he was a very hard worker, a very determined guy. I know Zacchaeus was very, very good at what he did. Now, the passage also seems to indicate that Zacchaeus knew who Jesus was. He knew something about this traveling preacher, miracle worker. Something about Jesus got his attention. It's really hard to, to, to know why Zacchaeus would submit, him, submit himself, subject himself to humiliation like he must have experienced and, and maybe even abuse like he must have experienced in that large crowd of people from Jericho. They hated him. He was public enemy number one. Why go out where there's a multitude of other people from Jericho? You know you're going to catch some elbows. You know you're going to catch some stones to the ribs. Maybe you know it's going to be a problem for you, but you go anyway. And not only did he go and face the, the hostile crowd, but when he couldn't set his eyes on Jesus, he climbed a tree like a child. This is not what a serious businessman does. He climbed a tree to get a look at Jesus. Why, why would he do this? It's important to ask these questions because the stories that are in the Bible are there intentionally. Why would Zacchaeus do this? The only thing I could think of this week was that there was something about Jesus that resonated with Zacchaeus and that Zacchaeus must have been missing something. That's the only reason he would subject himself to that situation. He must have been missing something, which is interesting because Zacchaeus was probably the richest guy in Jericho. Right? He probably had the biggest house in Jericho, and he, again, was notorious. So, but, but he had enough money to overcome all that notoriety. He could buy anything that he wanted. So the only reason he would show up there is if he had something missing. And I think something about what he had heard about Jesus resonated with the empty space in Zacchaeus' heart. And so he showed up and climbed that tree. And then Jesus, of course, made a, a beeline. For Zacchaeus, Jesus has a sense of urgency. Did you catch it in the passage? He said, Zacchaeus, come down now. I must stay at your house today. And this is really, really weird behavior from Jesus, completely, entirely inappropriate. It's not cool for you to invite yourself over to someone's house like this. This is rude, even today. And there's very little that's rude anymore today. This was rude behavior in a hospitality culture. You don't say, I'm coming over, get ready for me. But Jesus did, entirely inappropriate. But Zacchaeus was here for it. Now, why would Jesus want to go to Zacchaeus' house so urgently? I think there's a couple of possibilities. Maybe it was practical. Maybe, you know, Jesus had a large following, and he was on his way to Jerusalem, as we know he was. He was on his way to be crucified in Jerusalem. This is nearing the end of Luke's gospel. He needs to get to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is over 17 miles away, up the Jericho Road, uphill, and maybe Jesus needed to rest, and maybe he had a large following of people who would need to rest too, and maybe when he was walking into town, somebody whispered in his ear, hey, shorty in the tree up there, he's got a house big enough to put you up. Maybe. It's a possibility. But maybe also Jesus had bigger plans for Zacchaeus. Jesus appreciated Zacchaeus like I just said I did. Maybe Jesus saw something in Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus had a part to play in the story Jesus came to tell. Whatever the case, Zacchaeus was ready. He said he, he hopped down from the tree at once and received Jesus gladly. And Jesus went over to the house. And again, the religious guys go after him. Look at him hanging out with Zacchaeus, that tax collector, that 
Publicani, like, look at him. It's unacceptable for a teacher of the Lord to hang out with such filth. He was always catching heat from religious guys. And not just from the super-religious. Jesus sometimes caught heat from his inner circle. His own disciples couldn't believe who he was hanging out with sometimes. John chapter 4 is a good example. This is a very familiar story. It's a, of a, the story about the woman at the well. And it's really cool to talk about these places like now, since just getting back from the Holy Land. We were just in Jericho where Zacchaeus lived. We were just at the well where Jesus sat. Jacob's well. It's so amazing to sit in these places and know this stuff really happened. Jesus is sitting at the well in the heat of midday, it says. And a woman comes to fetch water in the middle of the day, which is totally out of the norm because women didn't fetch water in the middle of the day. Women fetched water in the morning, first thing in the morning before it got hot when the other women were fetching water and they would catch up. That's when they shared in community. They would gossip about their husbands and just, you know, uh, share about their day and, and they would fetch water and get home before the heat set in. This woman shows up in the middle of the day in the heat of midday to fetch water. Why? Because she doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to deal with the other Women, and when she shows up wanting to be alone, she's surprised by this man who talks to her. This is inappropriate on a couple of levels. Jesus was out of line here, culturally speaking. A man was not allowed to speak to a woman who wasn't his relative on the one hand, and he speaks to her. On the other hand, Jesus is a Jew, and she is a Samaritan, and both sides agreed we shouldn't talk to each other it never ends well. There's all kind of infighting. And so Jesus breaks two important rules speaking to this woman. Why does he speak to her? Well, something drew him to her. And he told her to bring her husband to him. She said, I have no husband. And he said, I know. In fact, you've had four husbands. And the man you're on now is not your husband, but your boyfriend that you're shacking up with. And her jaw is on the ground, right? Like, oh my God, how do you know? She is totally shocked by this revelation. But what's really interesting about the story is at the end of it, the disciples finally show up. And at the end of John chapter 4, it says, uh, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're like judging Jesus for talking to a woman. That's what religion does to you is it, it, it clouds your judgment. You can't see what Jesus might be up to. Now, why? would Jesus spend time with her? Now, was he just practically in need of a drink? Was he thirsty? He asked her for a drink. That's what he asked her for. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I kind of feel like the Son of God could have figured out how to work that well for himself. I think he's up to something else. Maybe, like Zacchaeus, this woman has a part to play in the story Jesus came to tell. And after he told her everything about herself, she left him and went to preach the gospel to her whole town. And at the end of it, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. In John's gospel, this woman became the first preacher, evangelist, to share the gospel of Jesus with others. A Samaritan woman who had four husbands and was shacking up with her fifth man in spite of her track record with other men. Now, serious question. Are y'all ready? Serious question. This is gonna offend people, but 
What kind of woman goes from husband to husband to husband to husband to boyfriend? What kind of woman goes from man to man to man to man to man, one after the other? Now, your answers may vary. I know of several different possible, possible answers, and some people might say this woman was loose. She was a harlot. Other people might say this woman was, historically speaking, a victim of patriarchal culture that oppressed her. Both of those might have some shred of truth in it, but I would submit and suggest that maybe she was just really good at what she did. Maybe um, grooming men and getting them to fall for her was a survival technique that she had perfected over the years. For whatever reason, maybe she was just really good at setting the bait and waiting for another man to take it. And maybe when she met Jesus, she realized he was unlike any man she'd ever met before. She was absolutely taken with him, so much so that she converted her entire town. Whatever the case, we know she must have had a reputation like Zacchaeus did that didn't stop Jesus from loving her and going after her and sending her to be his preacher. Now Jesus always seemed to be drawn in by the scoundrels around him. He always made a beeline straight for the scoundrels. And the question again is why would Jesus love scoundrels so much? Why not hang out with, you know, the good people instead of the foreigners and the prostitutes and the, even uh, he loved the Roman soldiers that put him on a cross and the thief that he died next to. Why? And I think it's because God doesn't judge people the way that people judge people. Remember the Old Testament story where God's looking for a new king of Israel? Some of y'all might not even know the story, and that's fine. In the Old Testament, God wants a new king for Israel, and um, he sends his prophet Samuel to go find a new king. He sends him to the house of Jesse, and Jesse has many, many sons, and one of them is a, a short, young guy named David, who's the one God has chosen. But, but Samuel can't believe it. Like, it can't be the one. Uh, look at his other taller, more handsome, you know, more outstanding brothers. And, and God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not consider his appearance or his height. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. The day that Zacchaeus met Jesus, something changed in his heart. It wasn't just that Zacchaeus gave money away. It was that Zacchaeus gave without being told to do it. And that was symptomatic of something happening on the inside first. Remember that other story where, where Jesus met the rich young ruler and the guy's like, how do I get saved? And Jesus like, if you want to get saved, give everything away. And he's like, nah, I'm good. And then he walks away. That's not what happened here. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus, give everything away. He didn't have to. Zacchaeus' his heart was changed. Inside, Zacchaeus said, I'm giving half my stuff away right now. And I know I've cheated people, and I'm going to pay restitution and make it right right now. That's in, inner heart change. That's repentance, and that is the key. The salvation of Jesus came that day to the home of Zacchaeus, the scoundrel. Now, there's something about scoundrels like Zacchaeus that Jesus really loved. I think it's because they're sinners. And they know it, whereas the rest of us are sinners, and we hide it. The only reason a scoundrel is a scoundrel is because they got caught. Because their sin was laid bare for all the world to see. That's 
All the difference that exists between us and people you might call scoundrels like Zacchaeus and the woman at the well, right? That is, uh, that, that judgment, that ridicule they face. The people under the, the sharpest microscope socially were the ones that Jesus went to the most, the ones that he loved spending time with the most. In his upside down world, the scoundrels always come out on top. The cheaters always come out and win when they repent, which is really good news for us because we all can rest assured who Jesus is cheering for this year in baseball. Like, we know who his favorite team is. Like, we got a little work to do on the repentance part, but it's coming. I, I believe it. Like, we know who his team is, and it's good for the rest of us too, individually. Individually, because each one of us is a scoundrel too. Every one of us is a scoundrel too. One of my favorite things about pastoring this church is um, every, every now and then I'll be having lunch with someone, getting to know them, and I'll uh, you know, drop a name or they'll drop a name and I'll be like, hey, I know that person. And I'll be like, you work with that person? And they're like, yeah. They're like, how do you know the person? I'm like, they go to my church. And then they're like, that person goes to church? And I'm like, yeah, they go to my church. And they're like, I got to check out your church because if, uh, if you can get that person to go to church, like that's some of y'all we're talking about. So <laughs> that's what I love. I love that it's all right to be a scoundrel here, but we still have work to do because many of us still have sins kept in secret. And oftentimes it's those of us who see ourselves as successful, right? And we are a bunch of hard workers we are a bunch of high performers, generally speaking, and I think there's a lot of pride in the room about what we do, and, and you know, like, um, there's a lot of sin for that reason, because pride builds a wall around us and fools us into thinking we're not scoundrels like them, but in fact, like, the, the most respected, some of the most respected moms in the room right now are, I know, they've got some secret battles, some secret addictions, some of the most upstanding men in the room, fathers in the room right now, you know, they, they've got secret, you know, affairs going on, or some of, the, some of the most successful, upwardly mobile young adults working in oil and gas and accounting and medical and legal and all this stuff, they've got a lot going on, and they're spending every dime that they make on themselves and not giving away a dime of it to any other place because they're not living beneath their means they're, they're just working hard and living large. And it's clearly not what Jesus asks of us, but they do it. And, and a lot of our top flight students, you know, um, have some work to do with how they treat their fellow students instead of just gossiping about other students or piling on or being a part of a bullying system. Like, loving those fellow students is really important. But do you know why we don't do a better job of that? Do you know why? It's because we tell ourselves the most common thing I hear from people, actually, the most common justification that I hear from people who are really secret scoundrels is, you know, I'm just really good at what I do. And y'all, I hear that from people who use it as justification, right? So I'm just under so much pressure, Eric, because I'm really good at what I do, that uh, that's why I did this. Or, or I'm, I'm, you know... Uh, yeah, I, I sleep around a little bit, Eric, but I, you know, I'm just, men love me or whatever, you know, like, or like, I just, I'm just really good at what I do, just like kind of the Astros did, you know, like, yeah, yeah, we cheated, but it didn't affect the outcome of the game because we're really good at what we do or, or the woman at the well, I'm really good at what I do. I imagine Zacchaeus for years before he met Jesus going, I might cheat a little bit, but it's not illegal and I'm really good at what I do. Listen, success can really make a mess of things if you let it. You can stand in the way of you and repentance, and repentance is the door to salvation. 
coming to your house today. And if any of this describes you, your journey, your heart, I pray that you follow in Zacchaeus' footsteps. And let Jesus fill whatever empty space there is in your heart today. Listen, it doesn't matter what your reputation has been. I know some, some of you really struggle with who you've become known as and how you have seen yourself all these years. Listen, that matters not to Jesus. Jesus sees the heart, not the outward appearance. Jesus is looking at your heart right now, and it's just your heart he wants from you now. He'll deal with the rest later. Give Jesus your heart right now. Let the walls of pride fall down and let him into your home, into your heart right now. He's ready for it. If you are, he'll invite himself over if he has to. Receive him. Would you pray with me, guys? Lord, um, we need courage right now. That's, that's the truth of the matter. We need courage to respond to what we've heard and witnessed in your word today. We need courage to trust your promises of grace, seeing our hearts and not our behavior. We need courage to trust that who the world says we are or who we think we are is, has no bearing on how you see us. Lord, help us to trust your grace right now. Those of us who are known scoundrels, even if it's in secret, Lord, we know and you know, God, break down those walls so that we can know you and be set free from this pattern of hiding our tracks. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.